Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's programme, we'll be speaking to the cosmologist that claims to have seen evidence that the multiverse is real. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter, at Science. We get to all of those comments later on in the podcast. Before we get into uh, our weekly news round, uh, just to mention that if you are interested in how we communicate science, particularly climate change, you might be interested in a conference that's happening next Wednesday in the Aviva Stadium. It's called SciComm, and it has a host of really interesting speakers. We'll be looking at how we communicate climate change and how we can turn that idea into better action and better policy. Find out more at SciComm.ie, S-C-I-C-O-M.ie. All right. As always, it's time to look back at some of the breaking stories from the world of science this week. We're joined by the ever-present Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and science communicator Catherine McGuinness. You're both very welcome. Our first story has to do with death metal. It's not a usual topic for us on the (laughs) programme, Jonathan, but this is about bats, actually. Um, And we all know that bats use echolocation. So they emit these very high-pitched sounds. They bounce off their environment and it enables them to navigate around, building up a picture of what's around them. But in fact, they also make very low, gravelly sounds. So when they come into a a very busy cave, they tend to emit these low sounds, which researchers think are about communicating with each other. Uh, So they kind of have, like, they they do them at the same time, I believe. No, they they have this huge range. So, So they have this range of about seven octaves and that's, exceptional uh, in the animal world. So uh, most animals have a range of about three to four octaves. And, you know, humans are actually pretty good here. Some humans have ranges of up to four to five octaves. And, you know, some really well-known singers that have these huge ranges are people like Axl Rose, Mariah Carey. Axl Rose? He actually has the biggest range on record. Yeah, Axl yep. Rose from Guns N' Roses, higher yep. than Mariah. I know everyone says Fact. Mariah Carey first, but it's... No, I, yeah, that's, it was, that was in the news this week. No, yeah. I didn't know that. And God. actually, uh, uh, Paul McCartney and Prince, Prince you'd think of, but, mm-hmm. but Paul McCartney... So, so anyway, th- those are the kind of people we're talking about. Bats are way better than any of them at the making a range of sounds. And a new study uh, that was published this week from researchers in the University of Southern Denmark has really gone in to uncover what's going on inside the voice box of a bat. Uh, So they had some voice boxes from bats that had died and they pushed air through them to see what was happening. And actually what they revealed was that bats are using structures inside their voice box, inside their larynx, that most humans don't use at all. And of course, one of those is called the false vocal cords. So we have these membranes inside our throat. They oscillate when air passes through. That's how we talk and make sounds. But on top of those, we have these thick membranes, which kind of help our throat to close sometimes. But we don't use them to make sound. Unless we're a death metal singer or we are a throat singer, like a Mongolian throat singer. So those incredibly harsh, deep, resonating frequencies that you get in death metal music, those singers are using these folds that bats are also using Ah. to make this incredibly low, rough sound. Um, So that's the link between bats and death metal singers. Very, very cool. (laughs) Our second story is a very promising um, Mm -hmm. uh, story. It's about Alzheimer's. Yeah, so this is kind of a a new drug that they're trialling at the moment. And unfortunately, before now, really, there's been a lot of failures in the area of trying to treat Alzheimer's. Also some controversy as well. So earlier in the summer, the reports of falsified data. So if we look at the brain on Alzheimer's, 
uh, several things happen. So first of all, you get this build-up of a protein called amylase beta. And this produces a plaque which blocks the the neural pathway. And then what tends to to happen as well, and they think there might be an interplay here, is another protein called tau, which is naturally occurring and should be there in healthy cells. But it starts to build up and then it starts to tangle. So it blocks the inside of the neuron. And then when all this is happening, the body's like, right, I'm going to sort this all out now and sells the gli- sends the glial cells in to clean it all up. The glial cells accumulate and then you get um, inflammation. So this is what's all that's happening. So the bad guy is the amyloid beta. And what this new drug, lecanemab, does, it targets, it's an antibody that targets this protein. And what the uh, data is telling us is that it's slowing down cognitive and functional decline by up to 27% in the test subjects. Now, this is really, really, really hopeful. This is great news, but we're far away from medicine being trialled in Ireland and being handed out. The Alzheimer's Society of Ireland, um, their numbers they give us at the moment is there's 64,000 people with dementia in Ireland. They reckon by 2045 that's going to go up to 150,000. And we would need regulatory approval and development in the health system because how this is administered is it's administered by an infusion. So you get an infusion every two weeks and then you have to have multiple MRIs to see how the um, drug is working and and, yeah. and progressing. So it's just not there. Even the, the chief medical officer over in the UK for the Alzheimer UK, he said the NHS is nowhere near ready to, to roll this out. So, but it's still good news because just the research in this area has been so... Oh, it's been so hard. There's been no real uh, breakthroughs before this. So this is why this one is just so hopeful. Yeah, I mean, I suppose one of the things that's great about seeing something that, that you know works and if, if you've been able to prove that it works is that you then can spark off different ways of approaching that particular problem, getting a similar sort of result. Uh, and also the procedure that you, you use to administer the drugs in the first wave of patients that mm. will probably be tinkered with and uh, and, and, and checked and refined and, and made become much easier but uh, it is badly badly needed Yeah and, and it's just timely as well because just last September in Ireland there's a new national infrastructure was launched to develop attract and conduct dementia trials so it's really really time sensitive and it's great that it all seems to be falling into place so this is why it's such good news yeah, um, uh, well, let's uh, hope that we, we can welcome more of these trials into mm-hmm. to Ireland. I know it's something a number of people and a number of stakeholders across the country are trying to, to trying to do, trying to attract more of these trials uh, to give patients access to to potentially um, exciting treatments. Our third story, uh, Ruth, has to do with minerals and new minerals. I didn't know that was possible. I know. And, you know, I have to, I did have to go back and do a little bit of uh, leaving cert chemistry revision to work, to remember exactly the difference between elements and minerals and rocks and stones. And of course, minerals are substances that are naturally occurring everywhere. They're inorganic substances uh, that make up our rocks and soil. So, So they often contain a number of elements, but they don't always. So things like diamonds are in fact a mineral, but they're just made of carbon. But then we have other minerals like Pyrite, for example, which is made up of things like, you know, iron and and sulfur. So minerals are building blocks in all sorts of different things that we use in our lives. And as you say, we don't really expect to find new ones that frequently. But but a team from the University of Alberta in Canada have just announced that they found two more. And they've announced this at the Space Exploration Symposium. And these minerals do appear to have come from space. Uh, They found them in a very large rock in Somalia. And, and it turns out this rock is a meteorite. Mm. Uh, the people in the area in Somalia have 
known this rock. It's been sitting sort of buried in the sand. It's about two metres wide. It's been there for at least, they think, five or six generations. Um, they call it Nightfall. That's the local name for this rock. And wow. they use it to sharpen knives. Um, they use it sort of like an anvil and a knife sharpener. Uh, and it, it features in their songs and their folklore. Um, but prospectors who were in the area about three years ago looking for opals took an interest in this rock and they took some samples and they sent it off to the University of Alberta. Uh, And Chris Hurd, the researcher there, was looking at it and he did confirm it was an iron-rich meteor. But there was things in it he couldn't identify. So he sent them over to a colleague who was a specialist in minerals who looked at them and came back in the space of a day or two saying, yep, you've got two new minerals there, possibly three. Uh, They were shocked. And, And the reason why they could do this so quickly was that back in the 1980s, scientists had been creating artificial minerals. So they'd been putting elements together in new types of crystals and creating new structures. And actually what they saw in this meteorite mimicked what had been created in the lab. So they were able to very quickly diagnose them and see what was in them. So they're they're looking at a third one now as well. Uh, They've named these new minerals El Aliite, after the name of the town, El Ali, where it was found. And the other one, Elkin Stantonite after Lindy Elkins Tanton, who is the principal investigator of NASA's upcoming Psyche mission to um, to which is sending a, a spacecraft to a, a mineral-rich asteroid. So obviously, if we if we find new elements, or uh, which obviously doesn't happen anymore, but if we were to, we might have very. They may have very interesting properties when we uh, look at putting elements in new structures, like, for example, 2D structures, which, uh, like graphene, they can do really cool things. These minerals, would they have interesting mechanical conductivity or different sort of um, properties that could be really useful? They, They may well. I mean, this is very preliminary data. It was just announced at this conference, so we don't have the full data. They're made up of things like iron, phosphorus, oxygen, so there's no new elements in there, but they are in a new type of combination. Uh, so, you know, look, we here in Ireland, things like pyrite, mica, we know that the properties of minerals matter. Uh, and we also know that, that minerals do have loads of applications. So I think as scientists study these more, uh, we'll find out more. The slight problem is the meteorite's gone missing. Um, what? So, <laughs> what? Yes, it, it's gone missing. you said it was two metres wide. It, it is, but it seems to have disappeared. Um, there's a big black market for meteorites, they think. <sighs> Uh, this meteorite is somewhere in China now, probably to be cut up and sold. Uh, so they are on a mission to see if they can find a piece because they, they think there could be other minerals in other parts of it. Exciting story. I know. I mean, like, when I was a kid, new mineral was kind of mixing Fanta and Sidona together. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Final story is about plates. Catherine. Yeah, we'll stick with food. Uh, well, well, bowls, technically. <laughs> That's what was used in the study. So this was, uh, now I'm going to start by saying the sample size was very small, 50. And it was uh, an olfactory uh, expert who was looking at colour so uh, science is a bit but anyway it's, it's interesting um, so what this uh, it's University of Plymouth and what they were looking at were picky ethers and whether the colour of the plateware would add to um, picky eaters and, and their neophobia so fear of trying kind of new food generally it's either taste and or texture that puts people off and so what they did was they had the group split into two, non-picky eaters and picky eaters, gave them the exact same snack in three different colour bowls. So white, blue and uh, red. 
and asked them to just assess them for desirability and for saltiness. And they, the, there was no real difference or anything significant coming from the non-picky eaters. But what the picky eaters reported were that, although these were the exact same snacks in each bowl, that the, the blue and the red were more salty and that the red uh, were least desirable. So they reckon there's something, there's something to it. That, that, that obviously, there's colour has a, now a, possibly a, a, a part in this. And, uh, and I remember they did the same snacks, so kind of a placebo effect in, in a way. Um, what's, you know, obviously, had a lot more work needed on it because it's a very, very small study. It, it reminds me of um, work done by Brian Wansink in America and more recently Charles Spence, Spence in um, in the UK looking at how we perceive food and uh, and how that affects our, our taste of it. We know that, for example, if you are serving plain food uh, in an airplane, you have to add way more salt to it for it to feel salty because mm-hmm. of the pressure and the experience of it. The noise itself dampens down your experience of the food. Um, but Brian Wansink's stuff, there was there were there were questions about the, the validity of some of that science. He, he had some really interesting stuff. So it was such a shame to find out that some of that science just didn't wasn't holding up uh, yeah. examples of you know uh, that if you if you're in a buffet if you walk all the way along the buffet and then go back and then start filling your plate you're much less likely to to eat more and all that sort of stuff it was really you know it sounded like really useful tips on reducing the amount of um food you ate but some of that some of that science was was retracted but mm-hmm. Charles Spence is, is a as a food scientist and is is looking at uh, working with food companies and how, you know what sort of textures and colors and and how you can make something feel more more dramatic, and of course, Heston Blumenthal was um, yeah. was took advantage of all these to do sure. some really interesting things in his restaurant, which we now see all over the place. So, I, I mean, I, I think certainly there is a, there's a chance it might a- affect um, uh, our desire to eat it, but probably not enormous, and probably not enough to actually have us all go out and buy a new set of red yeah, bowls okay. to get our kids <laughs> to eat food. Right? That's it. And also, another thing that they kind of draw a line with in in this study is that crisp packets tend to be blue and red. Yeah. So, and maybe that what is what led to the idea that that the snacks were saltier in those bowls. Could be. Uh, uh, and uh, and that's why whenever is it the UK have a green salt and vinegar so, walkers and that just yeah. completely throws me off. I just I don't know. <laughs> I, I if I see a bag of green crisps I avoid it like the plague because it shouldn't be that color. No, I mean because that's obviously spring onion and cream. Exactly. I know. Look, yeah. we've been conditioned as a, as a country. <laughs> um, brilliant. Catherine McGuinness, science communicator, and Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland. Thank you very much. Now, for most of us, the world multiverse probably conjures up some sort of fun science fiction episode, like the universe in which we all have hot dogs for fingers in Oscar contender Everything Everywhere All at Once, or the parallel universe in Star Trek where there's an evil you with a moustache. Multiverses are just vehicles for our flights of fancy, right? But that's what we thought until Professor Will Kinney casually mentioned that the majority of physicists now accept that we live in a multiverse in an interview with us earlier this year. Laura Mersini Houghton is Professor of Theoretical Physics and Cosmology in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She has a book called Before the Big Bang, The Origin of the Universe and What Lives Beyond. And furthermore, she says she has seen evidence to back up the idea of multiverses. Uh, welcome to the program, Laura. This is such a, a fascinating subject, the, uh, the concept of a multiverse for, for all it, it, um, it delivers. What, what first got you interested in, in the idea of um, where the universe started and what that meant for how it's evolved? 
Thank you. Thank you for having me in the program. Uh, I was actually uh, researching the question of the origin of our universe. We, we know experimentally and theoretically that uh, our universe at the beginning, it has been around only for 13.8 billion years. And uh, that begs the question, what was there before and what gave that first um, energy of uh, cosmic inflation that uh, drove the universe through the Big Bang and, and gave us the universe we have around today. Um, this question has a long reputation in physics, not only for being one of the hardest questions in physics and philosophy. I mean, we can go back at least 5,000 years in human thinking about uh, the question, but uh, what had brought it to the forefront of uh, scientific research was an estimate done by Sir Roger Penrose in the 70s. So Roger um, estimated the entropy, the amount of disorder in the universe. And since we know how our universe evolved through its cosmic history, then he was able to track it backwards, the, the current entropy, to, to track it backwards to the first moment of uh, creation. And he found out that um, that amount of entropy or disorder was extremely tiny in the first uh, few moments of, of the universe's existence, which when you connect it to the chance of the universe coming in, into existence in that manner, implies that our universe was incredibly special. It was incredibly unlikely. In fact, Roger estimated that uh, the chance to start a universe the way ours did is one chance to... 10 to the power 10 to the power 123. Every time I mention powers, keep adding those zeros. So we're, we're talking one chance in Googleplexes of uh, chances. So this idea uh, that you came across, that Roger Penrose um, suggested, that the idea of our universe is completely beyond the realms of understanding improbable. What does that mean for our understanding of the universe and how it developed? Well, uh, that, that presented a huge problem. As scientists, we don't like to be told that something is very special and we can't go any further in, in trying to understand it. And that's what uh, piqued my curiosity about the problem, as well as uh, many of uh, my colleagues. So I, I decided to try and understand first, to dissect Roger's argument and try and understand how did he come up with such an outrageous number for, for the chance of our universe to come into existence and then it's, it's basically i mean and just to clarify the number there laura sorry to interrupt mm -hmm. it's basically impossible is what he said it's, it's exactly. near well, near impossible for the universe to, to be and yet here we are living in this universe that that's exactly right and and uh, uh when when you think about it that that estimate is saying that anything that you can imagine in in uh, in your mind and and we can conjure up many possible beginnings even in fact even naked brains floating around in space-time that uh, now are, are known as uh, Boltzmann brains in, in physics is a, a completely science fiction concept. But even those entities observing the, the most outrageous events around, even those have a much higher chance than you and I to be here in this universe talking about the universe today. I just need to pause you right there. <laughs> floating brains in the universe what are you talking about <laughs> so those those are known as boltzmann brains and and uh, it, it goes back to roger's estimate if you conjure up any possible creation event you can even think of nucleating naked brains 
and those are known as Boltzmann brains. So, so even those uh, nucleation events of Boltzmann brains that, that are pure science fiction, even they have a higher chance to come into existence than our universe did, which, which makes the whole question, in one hand, you, you can tell it's, it's ridiculous. Our un universe could not have been so unlikely to come into existence. We, we don't observe Boltzmann brains floating around us, but yet we don't have a good explanation for why don't we observe them. Yeah. And so that's kind of, and, and that's what gave you this idea that perhaps this is one reality of many, uh, or at least it started you thinking about the multiverse. Uh, yes, that, that's correct. I, I was thinking, as, as I mentioned, I was uh, trying to understand Roger's estimate, and, and it's very robust. It's based on a sacred law in physics, known as the second law of thermodynamics. So then, uh, eventually, then I started having thought experiments on, on what other types of universes could I think of making, and what would be the chances of those other universes. And pretty soon, I realized the fallacy in, in, in the argument, because... When we apply the second law of thermodynamics, we are comparing one state of the universe, say the universe as it is today, relative to its own self 14 billion years ago. So I realized that um, it doesn't matter what kind of universe you can think of, all of them will run into the problem that uh, Roger pointed out, because uh, any universe, you can start with a large universe, you can start halfway, or you can start with a bouncing universe. Anything you can conjure up in, in your head, any universe will be subjected to the second law of thermodynamics, which says disorder grows. So any universe, no matter where you start, will have a smaller amount of disorder today relative to itself tomorrow which means that any universe will end up being unlikely by that argument. And, and when I realized that, it, it made me think that what we are really doing wrong here is the fact that we are focusing on the prejudice of having only one universe. That if I have a pool of possible initial states, of possible baby universes, if you like, then uh, you can circumvent this uh, argument uh, of the second law of thermodynamics and also ask the question, why did we start with this particular universe relative to other possible stars? In, in, in that case, the question makes sense. If you insist that you only have one universe to start with, then asking what gave this universe makes no sense. And that's a really interesting idea. So now we have the much more likely possibility that there are, in fact, almost infinite uni universes. And when we have almost infinite universes, then our universe becomes much more likely uh, as a result of it, right? Because um, we have I I almost infinite ways of universes to start and so almost infinite ways of universes to turn out. But this has always been sort of the, a, an idea that's been floating in the sky how on earth could we possibly see or measure or uh, be aware of a universe that wasn't our own? That was one of the foundations on why the universe was, uh, uh, the multiverse was not uh, favored, at least in science, in philosophy. People have been uh, entertaining the idea since the Hindus with the cyclic universes and uh, uh, the atomists in, in ancient Greece, but it had not until recently, it had not moved solidly on, on uh, science research. And, and the reason is because we are bound by the speed of light limit. Einstein told us nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. So that limit puts um, an horizon or a distance or an edge to the universe, to how far we can go in the universe and, and um, receive a signal back so we can see what was there. 
Um, in other words, that means that uh, we cannot travel beyond the horizon of our universe to see the structures of the multiverse beyond it. Yeah. That was the prejudice. But then I realized with uh, colleagues, when I started working on the theory of, of uh, the origin of the universe, and, and I concluded that uh, it, it really is part of a multiverse. And it has, uh, unlike what we used to think, it has a very high chance to come into existence in, in this particular way at high energies. Because the, the theoretical aspect was so promising, it was the first time somebody had derived the answer to that question of the origin of the universe, then I decided to go a step further and uh, see if there were any possible ways of, of testing this theory. So then I realized, of course, quantum entanglement. And so the, the idea, if, if I understand it right, it right is that these um, universes, uh, as they are forming and growing, uh, sort of get entangled with each other as they developed. And, that's absolutely correct, yes. And, and th this is your, your claim, and that they leave marks on each other as, as they expand into their real-life classical universes. That, that's absolutely correct. Uh, so in quantum mechanics, first of all, our universe was incredibly small at the beginning. We, we have settled that point, and we can see observationally that our universe is expanding into the future, which means... If you go back in time, then it must have been very small. Um, so were all the other structures, all the other universes. Therefore, they obey the quantum rules, which means that I can study them instead of studying them as tiny particles that are about to blow up and make universes. I can equivalently think of them as uh, quantum waves. In quantum mechanics, quantum waves are always entangled with each other. That, that goes with the territory of uh, quantum mechanics. As these uh, waves that are about to become big universes to go through inflation and Big Bang and, and blow up in size and become classical universes, as they are about to go through that process of, of growing, uh, they have also to, to shed their entanglement, their quantum nature, because classical universes don't have entanglement. Entanglement is a purely quantum concept. So I, I needed to study this process. How do these waves that are entangled early on, how do they separate, decouple from each other? And that uh, in physics is done through something that is known as decoherence. Pretty much it's um, uh, all these waves are interacting with an embedding space-time with a bath. And uh, because they are interacting at different levels, that, that separates these branches from each other. So let me just bring the audience with us here. And if we remember... Um, uh, from a previous episode of this program, we learned that the universe grew from uh, the size of a grapefruit into everything that we uh, know and see in the one billionth of a second or something like that, an enormous pop into an ex existence. And and before all of that, if uh, what Laura is saying is right, that um, the universe began uh, as not just a, potentially a particle, but also uh, a wave, or at least the, the nature of the beginning of the universe was a particle and also, as quantum mechanics tells us, also as a wave. And waves can entangle within each other. And so the idea is, at that time, those universes in their very infancy entangled with each other like waves do, and then sort of stopped being quantum things and began being proper things like universes and planets and people and that seems to be the idea Laura and you claim that we can see that in the sky when we look to very very cold parts of our universe that, that's correct and uh, 
as, as the universes are, are decoupling and, and uh, meanwhile going through Big Bang inflation, um, that entanglement that they are washing out, shedding away, uh, that entanglement is weak, but not that weak that it doesn't leave a scar in our sky. Now, remember, whatever see in my sky today is just a rescaled version just a blown up version of, of that sky that was uh, early on in the universe. So all these uh, fluctuations of, of uh, cosmic inflation that, that create all the structure that we see, stars, galaxies, us, radiation, light, everything we see, it was created in, in those first few moments. But in those first few moments, besides the fluctuations that are about to create everything we see today, we also have this entanglement being washed out. We have this separation of our universe from all the other universes. So that process of entanglement leaves its scars in our sky. It modifies, it tweaks these fluctuations that will become our sky later on. So once that happens early on, then as the universe goes through its cosmic history, it is simply growing in size. So all those scars are just being rescaled, but they are still here. And, and um, I calculated the strength of entanglement uh, with two collaborators early in, in the first few moments of uh, existence. Then knowing the cosmic history of our universe, I was able to trace it forward and see what it should look like today. So in, in that manner, we made a, a series of uh, predictions, about seven of them, with uh, exact, precise uh, sizes and distances where we should observe them in, in our sky today. One of those was uh, something that we called the giant void. We predicted that as a result of this entanglement, there should be a, a large area in the sky of about 10 degrees. That's a, a huge size that should be completely empty of stars, galaxies, all, all the structure. There, there were a series of predictions. Those were all observed with the Planck satellite experiment. Uh, for example, the giant void was seen as a very cold patch in, in the sky because if it's empty, then it's cold. Uh, that became known as the cold spot and is uh, at the level of discovery now statistically. So that was the reason why suddenly everybody's uh, taking the multiverse ideas seriously because for the first time, we have a way of not just theorizing about them, but also predicting and testing them with our current technology. I think the idea of this is so cool that we have this crazy idea of multiple universes entangling at their very infancy and that they, by doing so and leaving um, their their nascent form and becoming classical worlds that we, we live in today and we know uh, planets and suns and so on the idea that those can leave scars that we can now not just see but predict it's a really exciting idea uh, really fascinating to speak with you and uh, I, I'm really looking forward to finishing the book it's called Before the Big Bang The Origin of the Universe and What Lives Beyond Laura Mercini Houghton thank you so much for joining us thank you that's it from us on this week's podcast. Thanks to Simon Keane, Steve Daunt, Aidan McKelvey and Hugo De Silva, who's on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof on Tuesday in your podcast feed. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.